0: 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, The apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Amen. It is the word of the living God. May the Lord add his blessing to this public reading of his infallible word for his name's sake. Let's bow briefly in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we thank Thee again for the opportunity to be assembled in this house for the worship of Thy person. We thank Thee again that Thou hast brought us to this central aspect of Protestant worship, the proclamation of the infallible Word. O Lord, we pray today that thy Word will go forth in all its power to reach every soul, to disrupt every human agenda, to grant, O Lord, that today Christ will be exalted through the ministry of the Word. O Lord, hear our cry, we pray. We rest upon the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that that power will not only fill me to the uttermost for the proclamation of the Word, but will indeed open every soul to the reception of the Word and again to the disruption of every vain thought. So, Lord, hear our cry, we pray. We rest upon thee and wait upon thee now in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Our text is the ninth verse of the chapter. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Like the text that precedes it in the eighth verse, this verse of scripture has become a hook from which to hang foolish ideas. The eighth verse has become a foundation for those who advocate what the so-called day-age theory, that the days of creation are actually long periods of time, maybe thousands of years. This verse is the playground for those who despise the truth of God's sovereignty in salvation. It's the playground for those who subscribe to various versions of universalism, whether universal salvation or universal redemption or anything else that seems to guarantee universal salvation. Those who use the text for those purposes misconstrue or neglect its plain statements because it is a very simple and direct statement. In particular, some people overlook completely or change one particular word in the text, right in the heart of the text, us-word. Some say that that word really should mean toward you. Others just skip it entirely and focus on the statement that God is not willing that any person shall perish, but that all shall repent. But we cannot escape the force of the expression in our text that God expresses his long-suffering toward those of whom the text says that he is not willing that any of them should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. In its context, this verse presents the reason for what the scoffers suggest is the delay or the impossibility of Christ's return to the world. We read earlier in the chapter that in the last days there shall be scoffers who will say, where is the promise of his coming? They assert that since Christ has not made good on the promise that he left with his followers, that he would come again, he's not able or willing to make good on it. So they conclude that the world's philosophy is the winning one. So they conclude that as long as you surrender to the temptations that surround people in the world, there's never going to be any accountability because Christ is not going to come again. But the inspired apostle, in the words we have read, exploded all those ideas by putting the coming of Christ in the context of the timelessness of God. We draw our conclusions based on the concept of time, the perception of time. But if it appears to anyone that there has been too long a delay, after all, Christ promised 2,000 years ago that He would return, So there are some who say, well, he hasn't come yet, so he's not going to come. But Peter wanted his audience in our text to know the real situation. He wanted his audience to understand that it is not until every last person whom God has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world has come to repentance and to faith in Christ that the day of the Lord will come. And the practical application of that statement is that not one of Christ's people will ever be left behind. Not one of those whom God has given to Christ from before the foundation of the world will ever fail to come to repentance. Not one of those whom Christ came into this world to save will ever be in hell. There's the crux of our text today. God provides assurance in our text for those who believe in Christ. And He provides comfort for those who have not yet come to Christ. Because the fact that we are here means it is not too late for them. There is still time for repentance now. Some people think that they have sinned so much that there is no, no more opportunity for them. But the text says the door of repentance is still open. So in a very positive and emphatic manner, the text sets before us today the glorious theme of which I want you to consider God's pledge for all his people. This text has often, as I've suggested, been a battleground in controversy, but it ought to be a source of comfort. For those who are still outside of Christ. There's no such thing as hopelessness. As long as Christ has not returned. There's also comfort for those who are praying for others. For family members. For friends. For others who come into the doors of the church. That they will come to repentance. But sadly, one part of our text has become a whipping post for those who want to preserve the ability of people to have some part in their salvation. So when they come to the expression in our text, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, they draw the conclusion that God's will is that everybody should be saved. The question is, why are not all saved? Why do not all come to repentance? If it's not the will of God that any should perish, why do people perish? Jesus spoke in Luke 16 of the rich man being in hell in a place of torment. Clearly, in his life, he did not come to repentance. Why did he perish? Why was he in hell if it's not God's will that anyone should perish? Is it the case that in the end, even after death, everybody will come to repentance? Well, the rich man of whom Jesus spoke did not. The issue is the meaning of God's will in this text. This is God's pledge. Now there is a sense in which, as we read in the prophets, God does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I can tell you that today. But is that idea the same as saying that his will is that none of the wicked shall die? Well, Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. The Bible speaks of punishment. Everlasting punishment. The Bible speaks of the second death. So not all clearly will come to repentance. So of what is our text speaking? It is speaking of those on whom the Lord has set His special love and electing grace and mercy. It is not His will that any of them should perish. But we don't know who they are. We look about us today and we see some who we think are in that number but we don't know who they are. So if you've not trusted in Christ, if you've come in here today and you've not trusted in Christ, the way is open for you now because the day of the Lord has not come. But I tell you today, it is coming. It is approaching rapidly. Now, There are three parts of our text to which I draw your attention today. First of all, an emphatic negative. That's how the text begins. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. It's a rare expression in the New Testament. It has the idea of being slow or appearing to be delayed. The Lord is not slow. The Lord is not delayed. This expression is the atmosphere of that which promotes a hindrance to the accomplishment of a purpose. There's nothing that is keeping the Lord from accomplishing His purpose. It is not as though Peter is telling us that the Lord has somehow lost track of the calendar. He's lost track of time. He's lost the ability to put his will into force. There is one instance of this same expression in connection with a man, and there it has the force of delaying or tarrying. And let us turn back to First Timothy chapter 3 to see that reference. First Timothy chapter 3. And verse 15, Paul, writing to Timothy, tells him that he's hoping to come to see him shortly. But in verse 15, if I tarry long, if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, That is, it could be that Paul would find himself delayed or slow in coming to see Timothy. But Peter asserted in our text that nothing like that is ever true of the Lord. The Lord does not tarry. He does not delay. He simply does not lacked the ability to put his purposes into force. Some people, Peter said, consider the fact that Christ has not come to be slackness or tarrying or delay. We spoke about the scoffers as we read in verse 3, but Peter's word is clear. It's an emphatic negative. The Lord is not slack. So there's a word of encouragement for every one of the Lord's people today. What the Lord has promised concerning you is going to come to pass. He's not slack. Particularly, we may apply it to the situation where we face our own mortality in this life. The Lord is not slack concerning that which He has promised to His people. The promise of his coming. The promise that the Lord gave to build his church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We live in a period of time where some have written about what they call the de-churching movement. The abandonment by those who otherwise profess that they are Christians of the church. The Lord has promised He will build His church. The Lord has promised that He will save His people. So the fact that you have not seen all the fulfillment of that which He has promised does not mean it's not going to come to pass. Peter's inspired response to the scoffers was that the Lord is not slack. He gives from history an illustration in verses 5 and 6 that these scoffers are willingly ignorant of something. That is, it's not just that they never knew it, but they are willingly ignorant of it. They refuse to believe it. And what are they ignorant of? That the heavens and the earth are the result of God's creative acts. They're willingly ignorant of that. But even more than that, they're willingly ignorant of the fact that the first world, the world that then was, was overflowed with water and perished. They're willingly ignorant of that. That's the testimony of the scoffers all things have con- continued as they were since the beginning Peter's response to the scoffers is that what appears to be delay to them is actually something else and that brings us to the second aspect of our text a merciful compassion The Lord is long-suffering, we read here. He is long-suffering. That is, the Lord exhibits great patience. And There is an exhortation to the Lord's people in this regard that we find just a few pages before in the epistle of James and chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verse 7. Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The Lord's coming draws nigh. So what's the word to the people of God? Be patient. Wait. And I don't suppose that that word has ever been more needful than it is in our time when we see the rise of perversion across the world. What is the message to the Lord's people? The Lord is long-suffering. And yes, that is a word that is applied to all the people of the world. The Lord is long-suffering. Why are people still allowed, sometimes for 90 or 100 years, To defy God's truth. To defy God's word. To curse God's name. It is because the Lord is long-suffering. But this long-suffering is long-suffering to a specific group. Who are those people? Because Peter said in the text, and here's the word that's often omitted or neglected, he is long-suffering to us word, or as we would say, toward us. Well let's go back to the beginning of the epistle to find out of whom the apostle was speaking. Second Peter chapter 1, verse one, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So here in these verses, Peter makes plain the audience of his epistle. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us. Those are the people who are included in the scope of our text. They are the people who have obtained like precious faith with us. The text gives us the scope to say it includes all those who have not yet come to repentance, but who God has given to Christ before the foundation of the world. They have not been called effectually in time. Though perhaps today that word goes forth in time to call you to repentance. They have not been effectually called in time, but they have been given to Christ. And I make bold to say that those who have been given to Christ, Christ has already lived for them and died for them. The long suffering, the merciful compassion, calling people to repentance. And what is the force of that long suffering? That compassion. That's the third aspect of our text an unbending declaration. The Lord is not willing that any of those people should perish. But that all of them, every one of them should come to repentance. And I want to make it plain that the statement of his will in our text is profound because only God can grant the gifts of repentance and faith. So if we read here, he is not willing that any of them should perish, then we read that he will grant them the gift of repentance and faith. Turn back to Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, and verse 30. Peter preaching before the council when they were facing persecution for the cause of Christ. When the apostles were facing persecution, Peter said in verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Now they they might object that they were not the ones that actually carried out the crucifixion, that the Romans did that. But it wasn't the insistence of these people before whom Peter spoke. In verse 31 we read, Him, that is Jesus, hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give repentance to Israel. Only God can give repentance. If you've not repented, then your prayer today should be, oh God, grant me the gift of repentance. Because only God can give that gift. Here's a text then that speaks about God's pledge for his people. God will not abandon you. God will not leave you alone. Even in this period of great wickedness throughout the world, God will not leave His people alone. Here is a guarantee that not one of His people will ever be lost. Because it is not His will that any one of them should perish. And here is a word of hope for those who do not yet believe in Christ. The way of repentance is still open. Christ has not come. But I tell you, if you wait until the day that Christ appears, it will be too late for you to repent because he is coming to judgment. So the way of repentance is still open. So whatever your view of all these things is, The fundamental need of your soul is to repent and trust in Christ alone. You hear the call of the gospel today. And the call of the gospel is that you humble yourself. That you repent of your sin. That you not compare yourself to anyone else, but simply... Adopt the attitude of the publican in the Lord's parable in Luke 18, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then when you come to repentance, you learn that it was the mercy of God that brought you. You learn that it was the mercy of God to bring you to repentance, and you learn that God gave you to Christ before the foundation of the world. This is God's pledge. He will be faithful to it. There are people that we know, people who have sat in this congregation who are now with the Lord. They know the reality that God is faithful to that which he has promised. And when you come to repentance, you will learn the truth for yourself that God's pledge is sure for all his people. If I can be of any help to you today in the things of God, I am here by God's appointment as your servant for Christ's sake. Be glad to talk with you after this service is over. But I trust that you will, above all, speak to the Lord, because repentance is not something that you do to me or in my presence. It is an act of contrition before the Lord himself. May the Lord bless his word. May the Lord use his word to teach you the truth concerning the issues of salvation, that you come to repentance and faith in the only Savior. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee again for the clarity of Thy holy word, We thank Thee again for drawing our attention to this part of it, and we thank Thee for this pledge that Thou hast given to all Thy people, that Thou wilt not allow one of them to perish. O Lord, we are here to pray today for those who have not yet repented and trusted in Christ. O Lord, by the power of thy Spirit, bring them to faith in the only Savior today. O Lord, hear our cry. Encourage thy believing people through thy word. We thank thee for the work that thou hast known from the foundation of the world. That we would be assembled together here today. And that this word would go forth today. Surely, Lord, thou hast a purpose for it in every soul. So, Lord, undertake for it, we pray, and bless us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.